From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's the weekend of the big game, and Americans will be tuning in for the Super Bowl, taking place right here in Minnesota this year. And later next week, the Winter Olympics in South Korea. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll take our turn to talk sports. First up, we'll discuss sports performance with a Mayo Clinic expert and find out what factors affect how athletes perform. Also on the program, injuries to the anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL. They often happen in the heat of competition. We'll learn how athletes can practice perfect technique to help avoid ACL tears. And the future is now. We'll hear how regenerative medicine is being used to treat athletes. All that, along with a check-in with our dietitian for healthy Super Bowl snacks right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Whether you're a professional athlete, a high school athlete, or a weekend warrior, reaching peak performance is a common goal. Everybody wants to be at their best. But what makes the difference in your ability to perform? Why can some professional athletes seem to defy father time and continue playing at a top level into their 40s? What sets the elite athletes apart? I can think of one quarterback who's doing a pretty good job of that. <laughs> At age 40. Playing this weekend, as a matter of fact. Well, here to discuss sports performance is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and human performance expert, Dr. Michael Joyner, wearing the most fabulous Bart Starr jersey I've ever seen. How it's- can you be a Minnesota fan and say that? Because <laughs> I'm a Packers fan, oh. just like Dr. Joyner. From South Dakota and you're a Packers fan? <laughs> Where are you from, Dr. Joyner? I'm from Arizona, but my wife and my extended family is from Green Bay. I don't have a choice. She dressed you this morning, <laughs> you didn't did she? not have a choice. <laughs> so, Dr. Joyner, you've been at this a long time. In the, you're a human performance expert. And by the way, you have just received an outstanding investigator award from the NIH. Congratulations. Thanks, Tom. They're going to fund your lab for the next how many? 70 years or seven? Seven years. <laughs> seven. That's pretty good. Good for you. So tell us, in your experience, what makes an elite athlete elite? Well, I think obviously people have to have some ability. They have to be consistent. And I think if we think about five or six things with Tom Brady that have allowed him to uh, continue to perform at a high level, first, he's got a lot of ability. Second, he's on a good team. Third, he's avoided catastrophic injury. And you know this, Tom, from orthopedics. He did have an anterior cruciate or ligament injury to his knee, but he had it in the era of modern orthopedic surgery uh, when they're able to repair those things relatively slickly as opposed to somebody like Joe Namath. Uh, he's also played in an era when the rules have favored uh, quarterbacks. Sure. The in-the-grasp rule, of, uh, the, the pass coverages, <laughs> the holding rule, all that's changed. Bart Starr might still be playing today. <laughs> you bet he would be. And I think the other thing is that uh, he works out regularly, follows a, a rigorous diet and exercise program, hasn't gotten fat, and, and really has not uh, succumbed to some of the temptations that, that athletes uh, and rich people in general come to. And then finally, I think he really, really cares. So I think when you add those six things together, you mix in a little Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft, I think you really get greatness. But he practices really hard, doesn't he? I mean, every summer he's out there throwing passes and throwing right. footballs and trying to get better. I mean, you've heard the phrase, talent is not enough, or there's even a book called that. But that's right. true, isn't it? It sure is. And one of the most interesting things on ESPN was the quarterback camp run by the Mannings, Eli Manning and Peyton Manning, 
used to go back to their college coach every spring and do spring practice with the classic footwork drills and everything else that they did as young young quarterbacks so they could continue to master the fundamentals. One of the most interesting things about the Golden State Warriors who run a terrific four-year run in the NBA is that Steve Kerr, when he came to the Warriors, instituted a number of very, very fundamental drills. And the guys complained about it. Then they won 10 games in a row and wanted to do more. So if you see this over and over again, you see this mastery of the fundamentals. Fundamental drills such as? Footwork, jump rope, passing, catching, hmm. uh, how you how you plant your back foot and throw throw a pass. I mean, just these very stereotypical quarterback drills. Brady does them every day. I remember hearing, uh, maybe it was about baseball players more than anything, but that there's a lot of them that were getting into yoga and Pilates and that kind of stuff. Is that still something that these pro athletes do? It varies from time to time, and typically what happens, whoever is best, people emulate. Sure. But right. but you do find that people work on their flexibility, work on their strength, work on their speed uh, religiously. You know, we were talking earlier about Bart Starr. And there are tremendous YouTube clips of Vince Lombardi going around or going down and individually coaching people on their footwork, individually coaching people on their footwork. So this idea that he was some sort of tyrant, while true at one level, is is not true at another level. He was a great teacher who had his players focus uh, intensely on a few fundamentals. You know, we want to talk a little bit more about Tom Brady and what diet has to do with performance in his his new book. But also, before we do that, mention Roger Federer. What's the deal with Roger Federer? 36 years old, just won his 20th Grand Slam. In a brutal individual sport, there's no team to hide behind. There's no offensive lineman. And if he declines a little bit, it's not like the rest of the team can make it up. He's playing Rod Laver, uh, who is among the greatest and maybe the the one rival that Federer has as greatest of all time who's in his late 70s, said that he couldn't really detect any change in Federer's play. Hmm. He said if he had slowed down, he'd become so much better strategically, he was now able to exploit the, his subtle advantages over other players. So, But Federer's another example. Federer works extremely hard. He had a one-knee problem. He avoided catastrophic injury. The other thing that's interesting about Federer as he's gotten older is he picks and chooses. He doesn't play as much. He avoids the French Open because he's not good on clay. And he focuses on, on, on the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open, and he continues to do it. And he, too, is a conditioning nut. He hasn't uh, gotten fat. He pays close attention to his family like Tom Brady does. And so he, he seems to, again, uh, go after the fundamentals. Part of it is luck, isn't it? I mean, to avoid the, the injury like Brady has and Federer has. Federer, I mean, so many tennis players have an injury and they succumb to it and they really never come back. Uh, Roger Federer and Tom Brady have both been able to avoid a serious injury. I think you mentioned the, the leg injuries they've had. They've been able to overcome because of better orthopedic surgery, but they've haven't had shoulder, elbow, hand, arm, neck, back problems. You know, and one thing if you think about whether it's those guys, whether it was Dara Torres who we were talking about a number of years ago, at age forty and in, in the Olympics mm-hmm. in swimming, or one of the things you don't think about, we don't talk about it as much as we used to, is the great Bernard Hopkins, the fighter. Who, who I think was world champion when, when he was 49 or 50, and Hopkins did exactly the same thing. He had a strict diet, worked out religiously, and avoided all sorts of temptations. And what was most interesting in Hopkins' case is, like a lot of boxers, he'd had an interesting early life and I think had been in prison at one point when he reformed himself and became world champion and subsequently has had no problems. So how much does diet have to do with peak performance? Well, one of the things that's quite interesting about it um, – Tom, is it, is it, as you know, Tom Brady's published this book with his diet and his, he's getting a lot of publicity. And they ascribe all sorts of things to all sorts of 
special things with this high alkaline diet and so on and so forth. But what you in reality see when you zoom out is that he um, restricts his food choices. And that's one of the ways you avoid weight gain as you get older. You restrict your food choices. You have a plan. You stick to the plan. And at some level, within reason, as long as the diet uh, hits a few key points, you're fine. And that's what all of these people do. So I would say Mr. Brady's diet is right for the wrong reasons. It's not because there are some special ingredients or special things he avoids. What he's avoided is overeating. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> what he's avoided is too many calories, and and there's also it's amazing how that helps you lose weight, and or, or keep it <laughs> off. And then there's this issue too with his workout plan. He has all this stuff about muscle pliability. Well, if you talk to the, your friends in biomechanics and muscle physiology, they have no idea what that means. But what it does mean is he works out uh, you know, religiously every day. Now there was an article in Vox, which is a general interest news site for the 21st century, mm-hmm. they claim, and mm-hmm. uh, you're quoted in there. And it's about Brady's book called The TB12 Method. I think there's a fair amount of pseudoscience in there. But one of the things that he claims in his book is that the right foods, in his word, are are alkalizing and anti-inflammatory. Is that true? Well. Certainly, there's some evidence that the Mediterranean diet, which tends to be, quote, anti-inflammatory and and the olive oil and things like that, can help you stay in a little bit better shape and help you uh, avoid weight gain and prevent cardiovascular disease. But the type of inflammation he's talking about and the alkalinization he's talking about are way out there. The most important thing about his diet is he has a diet he can follow. It's a diet that prevents him from gaining weight, and it provides the macronutrients he needs to recover from his uh, games and practices. But there aren't any foods that you can eat that will actually change the pH of your body, are there? Uh, it would be very, very difficult, Dr. Shives, and you would have to have kidney disease or something else going on. In the old days when I was a medical student where we actually fed people baking soda, <laughs> which Yuck. huge amounts of baking soda in an effort to alkalinize their bodies. So l- raise their pH. Raise their pH. And, and, and you can do it, but boy, you got to eat a box of the stuff. Mm. You're also quoted in the article as saying the only post-exercise diet that's been shown to speed recovery is getting enough carbohydrates to replenish glycogen that's been depleted after a workout or protein to help with muscle building. Well, and that's the whole chocolate milk uh, pitch. What's been shown many, many uh, times is that if people do a couple of hours of strenuous exercise, they need to get the glycogen back in their muscles. So that comes with the carbohydrates. And there's a window of time, especially after a strength workout, where your muscles are sensitized to take up amino acids and synthesize new protein and recover from that workout. That's within an hour of exercise. So a protein load like you would get in chocolate milk and a carbohydrate load like you would get in chocolate milk turns out to be an ideal post-exercise uh, beverage. It's the reason why they hand it out at the end of all these races, you know. Yeah, well, I guess with, with good reason. That's right. And, uh, it's not just theory, it's actually fact. Oh, it's been shown many times, actually. And, and uh, there was some classic studies from, from Scandinavia done in the late 90s and early 2000s. All right, Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and human performance expert, Dr. Michael Joyner. We've been talking about sports performance being at your best Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll turn our attention to the next big worldwide sporting event, the Winter Olympics. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking with human performance expert Dr. Michael Joyner. He's also an anesthesiologist on the staff at Mayo Clinic. He's obviously a Bart Star fan number 15. But Very he's, handsome. Yeah, who are you rooting for this weekend? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm for the uh, Eagles, 
because yeah. Nick Foles went to the University of Arizona and uh-huh. I went to the University of Arizona. <laughs> and as one of my young sons has pointed out, Doug Peterson was Brett Favre's backup. <laughs> on the other hand, Gron- on the other hand, Gronk <laughs> went to Arizona, so I, I can win either way. All right. I-, um, I just have to ask, because I'm not going to ever be in the Super Bowl, nor uh, probably even attend a Super Bowl, uh, nor the Olympics. So what, the things that we've been talking about here, um, being better performance, a good, good diet, what tips do you have for a weekend warrior, someone like me who just likes to run and go skiing and be active? Be consistent. Find something you like to do and do it. Not cross-training? Uh, you can cross-train if you want to, and cross-training is okay. terrific, but uh, uh, find something you like to do. Okay. Avoid injuries. Mm-hmm. If you're injured, you can't uh, uh, be physically active. Uh, as you get older, uh, and most people don't have enough time to you know, train for the triathlon, ah. so they can eat whatever they want. Gotcha. So most of us do have to watch what we eat if we want to keep our weight in check. Those are those are, are, are four things in, in care, but I think consistency, having a plan, sticking to it, and so forth. So if, if you look at uh, diet, people have done tremendous studies where they've compared all sorts of different types of diets. And at the end of a year, everybody lost the same amount of weight <laughs> on, on these four or five different kinds of diet. But the only thing that really predicted how much weight they lost was their adherence score. So yeah. sticking, sticking with to it. it. So I understand that you and our producer Jen O'Hara are now going to the gym. Are you are you being consistent and have you changed your diet? I mean, you're both looking pretty buff. Well, we're trying to do strength training because we both do, she plays tennis, I go running. Um, but we're trying to do strength training because we're getting to be middle aged, and right. that's important, especially for women, to increase their strength training. It's important for everybody when you get into middle age. Seventy percent of seventy year olds can't get off the floor. As people get into their 60s and 70s, traditional risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol start to play a lesser role in predicting how long you're going to live. Things like grip strength, can you get out of a chair, how fast you walk, things related to muscular strength become much bigger predictors of, of A, your survival, and B, how independent you are. We're going to keep you in line, mister. <laughs> oh, well, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> but let me tell you what, I can still get off the floor. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> Let's talk about the Olympics. South Korea, um, well, do you think the athletes will be better, faster, quicker, more agile than ever before? Well, well, I think there's two big stories coming out of South Korea. One is that the South Koreans and the North Koreans seem to have some sort of detente going on around the Olympics, which is interesting when you just think of all the noise about have to be a fly in the wall. About the Korean Peninsula. <laughs> the other thing is is that Russia's been banned, but Russian athletes are still allowed to participate and Russia was banned because of the systematic doping that was uncovered at the Sochi Olympics. But in all levels of their program. Oh, from top top to bottom. Wow. What's interesting about that is Grigory Radinikov, the whistleblower, uh, and I were sitting next to each other in 2014 at a conference in Eugene, Oregon. And throughout this entire conference, he and I were chatting, and he kept making these very cryptic comments to me. And then the, he blew the whistle, and I read in the New York Times, Washington Post, and other places about what he had said. And all of a sudden, these comments made sense to me. So, so how did they catch him? Is it a blood test or urine test? Well, or how do they? And, and aren't there lots of ways that you can circumvent that yeah, test? Yeah, and... and what Dr. Rodinikoff showed is just how they did circumvent things, sam- uh, switching out urine samples and so forth, uh, doing putting things in, in, in their urine that would mask drugs and so forth. But I think the thing we've learned really since the days of Lance Armstrong is microdosing. So the cutoffs for what constitutes a positive test for most doping control um, efforts are way out there because they want to avoid false positives. So they're at the 99th, 
percentile. So you're only going to catch people that are doing industrial strength doping. One of the times I've interviewed you, you said the thing is that they're always just a step ahead of the tests being developed to catch them. So it just is always going to continue that way. Well, and, and again, thinking about Lance Armstrong, if you look at the Tour de France, it takes about 80 or 90 hours to do the Tour de France. Maybe 10 hours are competitive for the top guy, so that's 600 minutes. He won between by about one minute and seven minutes. So that's less than one, 1% or less, essentially. So they're looking for tiny, tiny edges, edges that are very difficult uh, to detect. And with the cutoffs set so, kind of so far to the right on the bell-shaped distribution and designed to avoid false positives, it's really hard to do. And when we talk about doping, what are they doping with? Steroids? Is it mainly steroids? Steroids is one thing, and there, there, there are three main things that people dope with, Tom. Things that build your muscles and increase your strength. Things that reduce fatigue, most notably amphetamines. But those are very easy to test for, so you hardly see any of that anymore. But that was the big news 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So things that build muscle, which are steroids and growth hormone. Growth hormone is tough to test for. And things that increase oxygen capacity, which would be either EPO or, or old school blood doping with transfusions. So tell us about EPO. What is, what is EPO? And is that what Armstrong was doing? Armstrong was doing EPO and then there became a better EPO test and he started doing traditional blood doping. EPO is a- What's blood doping? Blood doping is when you take your own blood out, your blood, your body then creates more blood cells and then you reinfuse that blood a month later. So your body can carry more oxygen. Carry more oxygen. More blood. More blood, more oxygen. And EPO is essentially a pharmacologic way to do that. Erythropoietin is a substance secreted by your kidney, which makes your bone marrow make more red blood cells. It's been a terrific medical treatment for anemic patients and a a wonderful thing, but it's been abused uh, when people want to go faster on their bikes or on the track or in the pool. All right, so there's lots of different ways to try and increase your performance, it's many a devil's of which are illegal. Play- the illegal ones are a devil's playground. <laughs> All right, well, we're looking forward to the uh, Olympics, and it should be good. And it, as you mentioned, interesting that the North Koreans are going to be there. And you said the Russian athletes are going to be there even though they've been banned? The, the Russian team has been banned, but the, there are selected Russian athletes who apparently have passed enough drug tests who will be permitted to perform under some sort of independent flag. All right. Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and human performance expert, Dr. Michael Joyner, recent recipient of an Outstanding Investigator Award from the NIH. Congratulations and thanks for being with us, Dr. Joyner. Great to be here, Tom. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn tips for preventing ACL injuries and later on in the show how regenerative medicine is being used in sports medicine. You're listening to the Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Food, football, and friends. A lot of people will be going to parties and bringing snacks to share while watching the big game. But can you snack and be healthy? Mayo Clinic registered dietitian Kate Zaratsky says yes. So last year, Americans drank 325 gallons of beer, ate 4 million pizzas, and also ate 1.23 billion chicken wings. How does that sound to a registered dietitian? That sounds like a lot of food. <laughs> it can be acceptable. It probably depends what you pair it with. So how about some other options? What are you going to have at your place? At our Super Bowl party, we always have 
an array of vegetables. And I use the vegetables maybe as a snack in and of themselves. So I might roast an entire tray of vegetables and that would be a snack because that's actually very popular in restaurants. And so to do that in your own home can bring kind of a nice flair to any party. But even vegetables for dipping rather than the classic chips. So if you have dips um, that you would like to use, you can pair that with, say, cut a bell pepper, maybe cut it a little wider, a nice strip that you can actually use it instead of a chip. Or you can, as you're enjoying your chicken wings, make sure alongside those chicken wings that you have your vegetables, and so you can have both and enjoy both. Registered Dietitian Kate Zaretsky for the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. An ACL injury is the tearing of the anterior cruciate ligament, one of the major ligaments of your knee. Now, ACL injuries most commonly occur during sports that involve sudden stops, jumping, or changes in direction. And that's that's a lot of different sports. That's kind of sports in general. (laughs) Basketball, soccer, football, even downhill skiing. Now, depending on the severity of your ACL injury, there are a couple of treatment options. One is to let the swelling go down and then rehab the knee, regain the range of motion and strengthen the muscles around the knee to help stabilize it. And, of course, the other is surgery to repair or replace the torn ligament, followed by rehabilitation. And some of the recent studies have shown that the long-term results of either method are really about the same. So there's some controversy, some difference of opinion. But keeping it from ever happening is the best option of all, and there are steps that you can take to help prevent an injury to your ACL. Research has shown that it's extremely important to have proper mechanics and technique in sports movements to prevent ACL injuries. Here to discuss is co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Ed Laskowski. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Laskowski. It's good to see you. Thanks, Tracy. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dr. Laskowski, for being here. You know, we hear a lot about the ACL, and it seems like it's happening, particularly to professional athletes who seem to all undergo surgery to repair it or replace it. I was just going to say, knock on wood, that it doesn't happen at this weekend's football game. It's kind <laughs> well, of a the big, Vikings it's playing, kind of a big you know? deal. Oh, you don't care? <laughs> no, Please. I don't care. Uh, so explain to us exactly what this ligament is. Everybody has heard about it, but what is it and what does it do? Why is it important? Well, Tom, the ACL controls the forward movement of the lower leg bone, which is the tibia. So anterior cruciate, and cruciate means cross. So there are two crossing ligaments in your knee. One is the anterior cruciate ligament. Anterior meaning front. Anterior meaning front. So it controls the forward movement of that tibia. And the posterior cruciate, or PCL, controls the rearward movement. And uh, most often, in, in, as you say, sports that involve aggressive cutting, pivoting, landing from jumps, uh, that's when the ACL can get stressed and loaded significantly to the point where it may rupture. So if it does rupture, the, the problem with the ACL is compared to other ligaments in the knee, the medial collateral ligament, say in the inner aspect of the knee, is very highly vascularized and it, it actually heals very nicely after we sprain it. But the ACL, once it tears... It tears, and that looseness remains. It never really regains its stability once its fibers are compromised. What did you mean when you said it's highly vascularized? It has a good blood flow. So the tissues that have good blood supply usually heal very nicely, but tissues that don't, uh, don't heal that well. Uh, so the ACL, given its characteristics, its uh, the tissue type and the and the blood flow supply, once it tears, it really doesn't knit together well. So we really can't primarily repair the ACL. And that's why you hear a lot about ACL reconstruction. We actually use another tissue in place of the, the native ACL that God gave us to restore that stability. 
So the ligaments on the outside of the knee, you mentioned the medial collateral ligament. That's outside the knee on the inner side of the knee. And then there's a lateral collateral ligament on the outside of the knee. But they are both more vascularized, have a better blood supply than do the cruciate ligaments. They do. Yeah. So if you touch your knees together, you're touching basically the medial collateral ligaments together. That's their location. And those are commonly sprained. When we get hit to the outside of the knee, that ligament can be stretched. But usually, again, it, it scars up very nicely. It heals very well because of that good blood supply. The ACL, unfortunately, is one that when it tears and when its uh, function is compromised, it kind of stays that way. It doesn't knit together well. What about, uh, isn't this a more common injury in females than in males? And do we, ha- do, do we know why? It is. And, and, you know, there's probably a lot of different factors. Um, uh, there was a lot of research uh, earlier on hormonal factors, which may influence a little bit. But also the anatomy is different in males and females. Females have actually a, a shorter ACL, and it's actually a more V-shaped notch in the knee where that ACL is than males, so maybe more predisposed to tearing. And perhaps one of the most important parts is the way we activate our muscles. And we find that the way women use the muscles about the knee that protect the ACL, like the hamstrings, is different. And the movement patterns that, that women have sometimes when they land from jumps are different than men. And they, those movement patterns may predispose to ACL injury. In my part of our opening script, I said, but keeping it from ever happening is better. So... I don't want any of the football players to have an ACL injury, but I also don't want anyone, including myself, to have an ACL injury because I like being active and taking part in sports. So how do we prevent this from ever happening? That's a great question. And uh, researchers here at Mayo Clinic, actually, Dr. Timothy Hewitt, along with many others, have looked at and analyzed movement patterns that are risk factors for ACL injury. And one of the movement patterns we've found, we call it dynamic medial knee valgus. What does that mean? Well, well, dynamic, <laughs> dynamic just means movement. So it's when you move, your knee goes medial or in. We talked about that medial collateral ligament being on the inner aspect of the knee. So the way we screen for this, actually, is we have somebody do a squat and oftentimes a single leg squat. And when they do a single leg squat, that actually magnifies. We can see that knee dive to the inside. You know, ideally, that knee should follow right over the foot on the way down. There should be a straight line mechanic of movement. But in, in people who are predisposed to have this injury, that knee dives to the inwards and in, inside. You can, you can predict who's more likely to have an ACL tear. Right. And, and in fact, even in our pre-participation exams, when we screen kids who are going into high school sports, we actually screen for that. And if, if we identify kids who have that movement pattern, we actually send a note home saying, yeah, you know, we've identified this. It's probably a good idea that you, your child get a corrective program to, to fix that because they'll be more less at risk for, for injury. Well, let's talk about that corrective program, whether you are a teenager, a man or woman. What can you do if you just said you can test for this at your own home? What what are some exercises you should do? So it's a great question. You know, we always think of the ACL, since it is in the knee, oh, work on the knee muscles, work on the quads, work on the hamstrings around the knee. But a lot of it has to do with uh, things above that. We call it the kinetic chain of movement. Everything's connected. So the core, everybody has heard about, the core is all the muscles in the abdomen, the trunk, the the back together. And then core stability is very important. And, and the hip links into the core. So we have a term we call lumbo-pelvic stability. Lumbo is the spine. Pelvis is the hip. And we, we train the muscles about the hip, actually. We find that the hip 
abductor, and that's one of the muscles on the outside of the hip, is very important. When it is not doing its job, it lets that knee roll inward. So a lot of the exercises we do, they're not pure uh, weight exercises. They're exercises involving training that knee to, to, track, to function normally when you walk and, and do movement tasks. So, for example, you, we have resistance tubing. You can wrap that tubing around your lower legs and actually just stride forward with that tubing wrapped around your legs. So when you do that, you have to use that hip muscle to control your knee. And it's ideally done at first. We do it with a therapist, but also maybe in front of a mirror. So you can actually watch that knee. And the key thing is preventing that knee from going inward when you're doing that movement task. Uh, same thing with the with the tubing wrapped around your ankles. You can do side strides and go side-to-side motions all the time watching to make sure that that knee doesn't go in. We're almost, it's almost a neuromuscular training. We're training over and over again the right movement pattern to, to replace that bad movement pattern. What do you mean when you say practice makes perfect when it comes to injury prevention? Okay, and, and we qualify that a little bit. We say perfect practice makes perfect. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Perfect practice. So we can practice something, but if we're not practicing it with the right movement patterns and with the right technique, we may have a problem. So if we're throwing a ball and and we, you know, there's there's many things that we do in, in many sports movement patterns that can predispose to injury. So if you throw and there's a thing called opening up too early. So if you face the plate and have your hips toward the plate too early. All that energy you generate from the ground goes back into the ground. You have to generate all the energy from your shoulder, and pretty soon you're going to have a shoulder problem. And and we can fix the shoulder, but if we don't fix that movement flaw, we're really not going to fix the problem. So the same thing with the with the ACL. We want those movement patterns landing from a jump. Oftentimes we'll, we'll look at kids and we'll have them, say, jump down from a box, and we'll see their knees knock together. And we'll say, okay, that person's going to be at risk for that, that, that ACL injury. So we'll train that perfect practice. When they land, we want them to stick it. We want that knee to stay stable and not roll inward. Uh, those are the things that will protect them. Would you say that anybody who is going to participate in competitive athletics ought to be screened for being at risk for an ACL tear? I think so. It's it's so common, and it, it, that movement pattern actually plays into even more than ACL injury. There's a very common condition we call patellofemoral pain, which is pain underneath the kneecap that that movement pattern plays into. It plays into some hip issues. Runners may may experience uh, the dreaded ITB, iliotibial band friction. That has been found to correlate with this movement pattern. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why we want that good movement pattern in and, and not that bad one. All right, anterior cruciate ligament injuries and how to prevent them with the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Ed Leskowski. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Tom. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear how regenerative medicine treatments are becoming part of sports medicine. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, your body has the ability to heal itself from most injuries or conditions. A simple example, a paper cut. Within a day or so, most people get a, starts to heal and they get a scab at the site of the cut and that scab is the body working to heal the skin and the tissue beneath it. The human body is, it's really good at repairing itself. In fact, it's, it's actually amazing. <laughs> but sometimes it could use a little help and that's where the new field of regenerative medicine comes in. Regenerative medicine relies on the body's ability to heal itself with a little stimulation, a little boost. The goal is to replace or restore human cells, tissues, or organs, and hopefully, over time, your injured tissue will work normally again. You'll be back to as good as new. 
Regenerative medicine may help your body to heal injuries faster, repair damaged tissues, have less pain, and function better. That all sounds good and worth learning about, doesn't it? Uh, for <laughs> May- sure. Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine in Rochester and Minneapolis is now offering regenerative medicine therapies using minimally invasive outpatient procedures for tendon, ligament, and joint conditions. Here to discuss is the Vice Chair of Mayo Clinic Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in Minnesota, Dr. Jay Smith. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Smith. It's good to see you. Uh, good to see you too, Tracy and Tom. Regenerate. I looked this up in the dictionary. It says to form or to create again. So now we have regenerative medicine. It's like something's gone or something has been destroyed and you can restore it or recreate it. Is that how you would explain regenerative medicine? Yeah, I think it's a, that's a very uh, good way to describe it. I think that really regenerative medicine it can be very broad, but we consider it using your own body's ability to heal itself, harnessing the the body's ability to heal itself through uh, biologic agents. What are people or what are patients in need of when it comes to regenerative medicine? What do you do most often? Uh, arthritis is probably the number one condition that we're consulted for because arthritis is so prevalent in the country. Um, so knee arthritis being the number one joint that's affected, and uh, many individuals are looking for ways to improve function uh, when they've exhausted all other possibilities, they, they're not ready for a knee replacement, let's say, or the timing isn't good for them, or maybe they medically aren't ready for surgery, and they've exhausted all the other options, and they're looking for something different. So how do you help them? Well, we have several regenerative medicine options, and the, the two most commonly used are platelet-rich plasma and bone marrow aspirate concentrate. These are both injections that can be performed in the knee. Is the second one stem cells, basically? Yes. You know, we have to be... Um, you know, careful about the terminology, but yeah, bone marrow aspirate concentrate or bone marrow concentrate uh, does contain stem cells, and and that could be one of the potential therapeutic benefits of bone marrow concentrate. But there are also other cells and uh, various growth factors and uh, chemicals in bone marrow that could improve pain and function in people with arthritis. So to call it stem cells isn't isn't quite correct. Yeah, I mean, most people will refer to that as a, quote, stem cell treatment, but uh, certainly in scientists' eyes and in the FDA's eyes, they try to reserve the term stem cells for purified stem cells that you have to grow in the lab that we can only give to people inside of a clinical trial at this point in the United States. Okay, and what happens when you inject these materials into the knee? So uh, whether it's platelet-rich plasma or bone marrow concentrate, the, uh, your, these contain your body's natural cells and chemicals, and they are released into the joint. They promote, um, they reduce inflammation. They have a variety of effects. They can fight infection. They can wake up cartilage cells in the knee that may be damaged or sick. They can stimulate cells to uh, divide and grow, um, and and thereby reducing pain and improving function. All these are theoretical possibilities with uh, platelet-rich plasma and bone marrow aspirate concentrate. Are you suggesting that either one of these can uh, uh, result in the cartilage growing, regrowing cartilage? Yeah, it's a very good question and one we commonly get. At this point in time, neither platelet-rich plasma or bone marrow concentrate as we use it in the United States has been demonstrated to actually regrow cartilage. In some clinical studies using pure stem cells at very high doses, there has been some documented regrowth of cartilage. At this point, we have we don't really know whether bone marrow concentrate with uh, in the way we're using it in the United States can uh, regrow cartilage. Have these been these treatments been approved by the FDA? No, they're not FDA uh, approved. These are still in the uh, in the FDA's eyes considered experimental, but you know they're basically off label treatments, which means that. 
most insurance companies won't pay for them, and, and the patient is responsible for the for the treatment uh, payment. So are there clinical trials, or are you testing it right now, or what stage are you at? Yeah, we, we have a multi-pronged approach here at Mayo. We, we like to offer what we can offer within within the guidelines and the rules and regulations, and so that's why we're uh, offering platelet-rich plasma and bone marrow aspirate concentrate. But simultaneously, we are performing clinical studies. We have an FDA-approved trial on culture-expanded stem cells, so that's the pure stem cells for knee arthritis that we're currently enrolling patients for, and we're uh, going to start a hip arthritis trial with the same cells. So these are uh, purified stem cells in 50 and 100 million doses, very large doses of stem cells. Other than following the patient's pain, how do you know whether or not the injections were successful? We still use pain and function as our primary uh, goal, and so uh, all of our regenerative medicine patients in our program will get re- uh, outcome measures, and they'll report back to us. Uh, in, as part of our clinical trials, we do perform follow-up MRI scans, so we have very sensitive MRI scans to determine whether there's been any change in the arthritis, whether there's been any cartilage regrowth. That would be impractical for the patient who's not in a clinical trial due to cost. And so far, pretty happy with the results? Yes, we've been very happy. Um, certainly this is not a panacea. Not everyone is helped by these interventions. But given the, the people we usually see have tried everything else and they're kind of at wit's end, and we, we have a very good success rate in, in getting them where they where they need to be as long as the expectations are realistic. I would suspect you probably got uh, no shortage of people who want to volunteer for this. Yeah, as far as the as far as far the clinical studies where we're given pure stem cells, yeah, we have, uh, we have a significant number of people that want to get in. Unfortunately, Fortunately, the entry criteria are very strict. Yeah. What about gene therapy? Are you doing anything with that? Yep. So uh, Dr. Christopher Evans, um, who's a, a Ph.D. in the Department of Physical Medicine, has a gene therapy trial for knee arthritis. Again, knee arthritis keeps coming up because it's the number one arthritis that's affecting all of us in America. And uh, uh, I'm a co-investigator with him, and we're going to launch that trial this year using uh, modified genes to basically infect the knee joint cells with uh, a virus that will cause them to be drug manufacturing factories. Do you think one day you will put orthopedic surgeons out of business, the ones who are doing total joint replacements? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I think there's always uh, there's always room. I think it's just expanding the options for patients. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Exciting stuff. The vice chair of the Mayo Clinic Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in Minnesota, Dr. Jay Smith, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me again. Well, that's the end of our Super Bowl program, Dr. Shives. I don't know if I want to ask you who you're going to be rooting for in this game. Are the Vikings playing? <laughs> After that interview with uh, Kate Zaratsky, I'm just hungry for guacamole. Oh, oh yeah, and vegetables, <laughs> dipped vegetables, no more chicken wings. <laughs> that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.